So here we are at Freeze Art Fair in Regent's Park in London. We are in the tent, the big circus, as it's affectionately known. And we are with someone who is the board director of Freeze, an old friend of both mine and Robert's. We've known you for many years. And it's exciting because we are actually here in the BMW lounge to talk about the amazing work. Yeah, and this year, BMW's open work is continuing. For the past five years, BMW open work has brought so many incredible experiences. Um, They've helped artists um, realise their dreams to do kind of very ambitious, interactive, um, experimental artworks. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Victoria Siddle. Hi. Hi, (laughs) How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for the excellent introduction. Yeah, this has been such an, a momentous year for Freeze because the pandemic, um, obviously everybody knows, has uh, delayed a lot of projects and also stopped Freeze last year from even happening. We had to do it all online as a gallerist. It was a wonderful thing that you helped us do the online art fair because it meant our businesses could all keep running. Mm. Um, and actually it was very successful online. But I must say that this year's Freeze 2021 has been, I think, the best I've ever done. And I've been at Carl's Gallery now for just over 11 and a half years. And um, I've done many editions of the fair. But this one feels so like... Um, open and um, breezy and kind of like relaxed in a weird way. And I was expecting it to be quite anxiety-inducing, but I've actually had the opposite <laughs> effect. It's been a joy to see everyone. We've, we've, we've actually sold out our booth and it's just been a, a great experience. How has it been for you? That is so lovely to hear. And I have to say, totally echoes my own experience and that of pretty much everyone else I'm speaking to. Yeah. You know, there's a real magic that happens when you put art and people together under the same roof. And we've really seen that in abundance this week. It's been extraordinary. And I think it's been so long, actually, since we were together. We'd almost forgotten how good it was. And that has just made for the most incredible atmosphere. It's been so positive. And, um, yeah, I really couldn't be happier. And and actually many stories similarly to yours, are similar to yours, which are, you know, galleries doing really well, which obviously means so much to artists as well as to the galleries. Um, so it feels like a really important week in London and so vibrant. And um, it's fantastic to see this city back at its best again. Absolutely. I mean, as a collector myself going around, normally I get a little bit hot and sweaty and scratchy and kind of stressed (laughs) out. But this year felt really calm. And as you're saying, it feels like there's lots of collectors that want to support artists Mm. of all levels. They're, They're buying, they're collecting, they're acquiring. And it's really... It's really brilliant to see because it means the culture is being supported. Artists are being supported, Absolutely. galleries are being supported. Yeah, and this is also, let's not forget, it's an important um, week for museums in London as well. You know, Tate opened their annual Turbine Hall Commission, which is Anarchy Yi this week. Oh, um, yeah. You know, Studio Voltaire's reopened, Yay. obviously. You know, full That's disclosure, I'm very from, involved. Studio Voltaire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, Theaster Gates at the Whitechapel. But this is an important moment for London in that it's bringing all these people who support institutions support galleries support artists uh you know the restaurants are full of people the hotels are full so it has such a a great impact and it's a lot of fun yeah definitely and right now we are sat in the bmw lounge here at the art fair in regent's park and we're celebrating an artist called madeline hollander and we're actually about to meet her as well and discuss an incredible new artwork which is called sunrise sunset which was a commission for bmw open work now can you speak a bit about the collaboration between freeze and um bmw because i know for the past five years they've been doing these extraordinary extraordinary experimental um installations Mm. so we've actually been working with them with BMW for 17 years now. Wow. And 
You know, I remember in the early days of Freeze, before the partnership started, they were always our dream partner <laughs> because, you know, they've been supporting art and culture for 50 years now. So they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of cultural engagement this year. And, um, and they've always done it in such an interesting way. They commissioned all these incredible artists to make art cars. So this isn't just about slapping a logo on something. It's like proper engagement. And as you said, you know, enabling artists to do something that could be a dream for them or something that's like different to their usual practice. Um, they're supporting so ambitious like artists. Really ambitious, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a really kind of meaningful engagement that they have with art. So, uh, so yes, we're thrilled to start working with them and then we sort of cooked up this idea together of open work which launched five years ago and every year it uh, essentially you know, commissions an artist to make a new work that engages with BMW technology and this year Maladin Honda has done this extraordinary installation um, I don't know me. if you can pick it up on the microphone but there's lots of clicking you hear yes. in the background which sounds like crickets but it's actually car headlights yeah. which are going off one at a time and the piece is called Sunset Sunrise. Yeah. Or is it Sunrise Sunset? Sunrise Sunset, sunrise, I think. Sunset, yeah. yeah. And um, it's, it, it, it's, it's this wonderful, it's, as you say, it's these sort of car headlights, um, hundreds of them, yeah. possibly, sort of all hanging on a wall with these lights clicking on and off. And it's sort of reflecting the movement of the sun around the world. So it's also this really interesting, it's a very complex use of technology, but also relating to nature and the planet. Yeah, totally. And it's actually site specific. So it, it hasn't existed before. And this is the world um, premiere of this work. And it's totally self-sufficient. And it's an installation, as you said, of 100 um, recycled BMW LED headlights. Well, Victoria, it is been so great to speak to you and we actually did an, an episode this week uh, to celebrate freeze with uh, wayne mcgregor and um, random international which is also on site here for no one is an island so that's been really exciting as well having that whole dance performance on site is is that kind of thing really important to you at freeze to have Absolutely. those kind of live events yeah and we've always tried to kind of give a platform to different kind of art forms within the fair or around the city so we have our live program for example that um was the idea was to give a kind of you know an art fair platform to performance art which you rarely see in this sort of yeah, context yeah. um and and that's all online actually this week um and some fantastic performances in there Amazing. um so yeah it's uh, it's it's been great and great to see you guys here yeah what will um, you do to celebrate your freeze success this year <laughs> go well, to sleep i should say there is a massive team who have made all of this yeah. happen and actually i think we're all going to have a glass of champagne tonight very well earned. well deserved <laughs> well we've got to ask you before you go we are ask people with the same talk art questions uh, but we're going to ask, ask you one specifically normally we ask what would be your art heist anything in the mm -hmm. world but I want to make it free centric have you been walking around the fair are there any artworks that you would love to nicely steal that you wouldn't get in trouble for from Freeze Art Fair 2021 and we can help you we will bring uh, could you yeah, oh. like vans we or cranes nicely to okay. the, uh, okay. or we can convince the gallerist so it doesn't have to fit in my handbag no no <laughs> So actually, there is one work that actually has a particular meaning for me as well, because over the last year, I've been involved in setting up something called the Gallery Climate Coalition, um, which aims to support the art world to be more environmentally friendly. We've now got over 500 members who've signed up to halve their carbon emissions by 2030. And Wolfgang Tillmans, who has always been one of my Heaven absolute favourite artists and people, um, donated this incredible photograph to benefit Gallery Climate Coalition. And it's on their booth here at the fair. And it has sold already, but I was just, I was so thrilled that we could have that here. And 100% and goes, wow. the proceeds has gone to Gallery Climate Coalition. So unbelievably generous. That's wicked. I love Wolfgang. He, he was a previous talk art guest as well. 
yeah. So, um, so yeah, if that, the thing is, I can't really steal that one because obviously the money's all going, going to, to charity. charity. It's very close to my heart. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of incredible works at the fair, that's, well, he that's works in top of my list. So unless that's a unique... It's a unique work. Ah, it's okay. a unique work. There and it's a photograph team. of... Um, a tree that's been blown down in a hurricane. So also, you know, in highlighting environmental concerns. It's just the perfect work for that cause. Great. Um, and an incredibly generous donation by the that's artist. That's a lovely choice. What is next for Freeze for you as the well, board of Freeze? Uh, Freeze LA is our next fair in yep. February. Obviously, yep. we were not there this year. So that will be another fantastic reunion and coming back to, um, to life for us. And it's always such an incredible week in the city. And then next year, we are also launching Freeze in Seoul, um, which is our first venture into Asia. Um, so that will happen in early September 2022. And I'm very excited about that. Amazing. And actually, we're going to invite you back on the podcast later in the year, I think around Christmas time, for a top secret currently uh, project together. Oh, yeah. And then we'll be able to talk more about Freeze LA at that point as well, because yes. that'll be closer to that fair. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Thanks. Uh, Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Wherever you are in the world, I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling deeply connected to my childhood self because as a sort of three-year-old, I was obsessed with dance and I used to do ballet every single day until I was about 11. And it literally, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. And what do you hang on, what do you mean you did it every single day? Like you did it at home? I used home to rehearse at home every day, yeah. And I also went went to like ballet classes and um, had teachers. And I actually wanted to apply for the Royal Ballet School, but then I had Achilles tendons problems. Anyway, that's all quite boring now. But anyway, <laughs> today's guest is an incredible artist, but they've also worked with dance, you know, for a long time period of, of their lives like pretty mm-hmm. much the similar kind of experience to what I had I think I, I love their work so much because dance and um, movement and motion and choreography has really got such an integral part of of the artworks that are that are that are created and over this past week at, at Freeze London we had the great privilege of spending time with an installation by by this artist and I, I was totally inspired by it so much so that I visited it about five times throughout the week as a kind of respite from my booth it's just such an inspiring artwork and I cannot wait to speak to her all all about it so we would like to welcome to talk art Madeline Hollander. Hi, Hi, Madeline. Hi. Thanks How so much you? for having me. I'm good. How are you guys? We're at, yeah, we're doing good. Where in the world are you? I am currently in Los Angeles, so it's morning my time, and I believe it's evening your time. So oh, it's yeah. sunset exactly. time. Exactly. <laughs> and sun, sun, no, sunrise time where you are and sunset time. Exactly. Here. No, so, or you're in front. I can't. Very I'm poetic. Uh-huh. Very poetic. Well, that is the title of the show uh, that you recently had at the BMW uh, Open Works Lounge at Freeze Art Fair this year. It was called uh, Sunrise Sunset. And it was um, connected to another work of yours, which is Head Slash Tails. Um, and, and, and it's amazing what Rob was saying. It's this incredible work. It's like a hundred um, uh, headlights and tail lights from BMW cars in the BMW lounge that are all placed against um, a wall, are all hung on a wall, but they all have this formation that goes through it, this choreography that goes through it of lighting and lighting up and, and going dull again. 
and it's it's just it's just brilliant. But I guess you was in Los Angeles for the install of this. Um, yes, I was. I I recently gave birth to a, a baby boy, so I wasn't able to fly over to London to oversee the install. But um, I uh, am am so grateful for the team who did a wonderful job doing that. And we did a we did a trial run in my studio here, so we were pretty prepared. Oh. Um, and it, it did look extraordinary. So yeah. you were definitely in good oh, hands. Thank you. I'm yeah. so happy you went and visited five times, making up for some of the. <laughs> Miss times. I well, think. let's before we get on to the BMW version, let's talk about Heads Tails because this is um, a seminal work of yours, and it appears in in one room, and each side of the room are a sequence of headlights that respond to something going on. Yeah, and it really is the origin story for this project that was for the open work piece. Um, Heads Tails was composed of hundreds of recycled uh, headlights and taillights. So most of them were taillights because I really love that red glow. Um, and what I was, uh, the initial goal of that piece was I really wanted to just choreograph the traffic outside of the gallery. So before even coming up for coming up for the idea or with the idea of, um, what was happening inside, I really was trying to figure out how can I choreograph these cars that were going down white street and this area of Tribeca that, um, is directly in front of the gallery and realized as soon as I began researching that, that, you know, the traffic system and the cars and the drivers are already, you know, choreographed by the the traffic control and these these traffic lights that are all connected to each other to create a network and kind of form this incredible networked, you know, web of choreography that that composes the movement of all of Manhattan as well as the other uh, bureaus. Uh, bureaus. Sorry, I did not sleep last night <laughs> because of this little infant. Oh, um, that's right. But uh, so as soon as I, I realized how complex that choreographic system is and the programming that goes into that and how stoplight uh, traffic lights are actually dynamic. So they're changing by, you know, every day based off the time of day, the days of the week, what the bus schedule is, whether or not it's a holiday weather schedule, you know, whether it's pouring or sunny out, you know, seasonal holidays. Um, I realized that there's this, you know, grand choreographic, the choreographer was already there and I didn't have to do any choreographing. I just had to capture it. Um, and so then I started observing the way that, you know, drivers would approach an intersection and looking at all the different types of personalities. You see someone who kind of would, um, you know, try and run through a, a yellow light or would someone who's uh, you know, being very cautious, someone who's lost, someone who would approach an intersection, um, you know, very, uh, you know, aggravated because they have road rage and started looking at the light patterns on their brake lights for each of these different behaviors and programming this into um, kind of a personality score for each of these lights. So um, the the basis of this piece was to, or the goal was to sync all of the brake lights in this room to illuminate every single time that the actual traffic light on the corner, the closest corner to the gallery turned yellow and red, then all of the brake lights inside would also turn red. And it would kind of, you know, mimic exactly what was happening with the cars outside the gallery. So if you were standing outside the gallery and you looked at the intersection, you would see all of the, the cars kind of illuminating red from the back and then you'd look at the gallery and it'd be glowing red as well so those oh were God, completely so synced cool. 
Um, it's like such an expansive work, isn't it? Because it's like it takes you beyond the gallery space completely. and into the everyday. It's a really special thing. And it's something that works on a 24-hour clock, which I really love. So, you know, there were the the front of Bordolami Gallery has these big glass windows. So even when the gallery was closed, you could be on the street and see that installation continuously, you know, moving and dancing with the street traffic because the whole space would illuminate and be glowing this like pink red color um and that continued you know for the entire duration of the show so whether or not you made it before or after you know the gallery hours you still got to experience the speed the piece and see how it interacted with you know our everyday traffic patterns um yeah so that was that a really very... oh sorry go ahead but... No, it sounds very complicated. I mean, how long was it? Ta- how long did it take to kind of develop the science behind this to be able to connect all those dots? Um, I knew what I wanted to achieve for a long time, and actually getting access to someone who would trust me and give me some access to the Department of Transportation and the um, the you know just to under. I got a lot of pushback because people were really confused why I was trying to get access to the codes for, you know, how these traffic lights were were (laughs) actually programmed and um, was accused of many. uh, I bet. You know, I I was very, very difficult to get access. And after two years of really trying to talk to people and kind of going after, if I saw someone repairing a streetlight, I would go after them and ask the, you know, the technician like a million questions and see if there was someone I could speak to and, finally was able to um, connect with someone within the Department of Transportation who trusted that I was not trying to create some sort of escape. I mean, I wasn't trying to manipulate anything and I actually wanted to do this for a choreographic artwork. Um, And they were pretty intrigued and uh, they allowed me to set up a really complicated system so that I could get access to those live programs so that it it was linked. Wow. The the thing that I really like about it, which is one of my favourite things with art, really, is how art can can sort of make you look at the everyday sort of things that you overlook, your kind of rituals, you know, things that are just part of the human experience. And you might miss it because you're so caught up with just living that you never see it. And what I loved about yours was it's a bit of a cliche saying the word stop, but it did sort of stop me in my tracks. Um, and and I, I, I love that. That, that kind of approach to the way that you see art making. Can you speak a bit a, a, a bit about that kind of approach? Yeah, I think that my background in, in dance and choreography, and I was a professional ballet dancer for many, many years of my life, um, has allowed me to really view these rituals and these everyday activities and the way that we interact with each other or architectures really as choreography. So, you know, instead of, you know, on, on one hand, they could be perceived as these autopilot behaviors and things that we do out of reflex and are just kind of set in motion and do become invisible. But if you actually kind of extract them and look at the patterns and the movements that our bodies are, um, you know, bending towards in order to make these things happen, you all of a sudden see that we're being choreographed by all of these invisible or non-invisible systems, con- uh, you know, continuously. And some are very beautiful and some are very rigorous and some are you know the ones that seem most natural to us might be completely um you know not in tune with our bodies or um things that we've just gotten so used to that we don't really question anymore um and so i guess i am an artist but i really do feel like all of the i'm not saying i'm not an artist and saying the medium i'm working with is movement so i'm really scanning these everyday scenes and looking at what are these systems that are create, that are 
causing different types of movement in our body or in the way we communicate or the way that we enter and exit a building or, you know, move through space. And that becomes the source for a project and a research piece. It's a pretty rare trajectory to go from ballet dancer to artist. I don't, I can't really cite many other artists I know have done that, but what, what, what you've then got is this, as you're saying about choreography and, and, and the ready-made it's, it feels like Duchampian of dance. It feels like you're kind of, you're taking these ready-made natural choreography, like the chaos of life, and within that you're finding choreography and you're finding these these movements of everyday activities that are based around technology and then, then representing them to us as as dance, as performance. Completely. And I do I do call those choreographic ready-mades. I, I find that in my practice I'm never working, I'm never creating any movements from scratch because I'm finding new movements around me constantly. I feel like I have this like incredible infinite database. If you just explore, you know, what's happening outside and how these systems and networks are working. Um, and my, my favorite, I feel like my practice is really about kind of suturing them together or kind of Frankensteining these movements that already exist and starting to piece together something that has to do with the body, something that has to do with the technology and perhaps something time or distance to see, what comes out of that or what kind of message or feeling that can evoke. Um, yeah. Well, for example, these, these are like small movements. I mean, this would be something like swiping on your iPhone exactly, or, or, or un, un, uncapping a bottle. It's like, I mean, you must never be able to switch off. If you're paying attention <laughs> to these, these small movements yeah. constantly and thinking that is, that is, a, that is a ready-made choreo- choreography there for me. That must be hard to, Kind of, I mean, especially with a, a baby now, you must be watching how your baby's it's moving. Spectacular, yeah, it's really, yeah, fascinating, <laughs> very entertaining. That, yeah, yeah, I bet. Cool. But but you have this really incredible language of um, archiving all of these gestures, and you you you've called it the gesture archive. All of these gestures that you're seeing on a daily basis, and there's a way of recording them with your dancing. Um, background with the way that choreography is recorded by choreographers yeah I mean I've always been so fascinated by how quickly our bodies are able to adapt to new technologies and interface and um, you know what's happening in in culture and politics and uh, you know how quickly a gesture can become a new gesture can enter our, our daily corporeal vocabularies and then all of a sudden a year later we don't use it anymore or something that has to do with technology, for example, um, you know, if you look at the gesture you would do to signal the rotary phone versus the flip phone versus the Blackberry versus the um, iPhone, you know, versus, there, there are all these languages, there's all these corporeal gestures that people do to say, call me, that have changed, you know, they ex- this change has accelerated over the course of the last 20 years, kind of exponentially in a way that mm. made me want to start recording um, these transformations and these mutations so that I could kind of isolate them and be like, all right, this gesture has to do with this particular technology or this particular time at, in, you know, 2010 or whatever was associated with, you know, how that movement um, got ca- catalyzed. And then I've kind of categ- not categorized or I've organized some of these movements in um, gesture archive and these videos as movements that are, um, you know, about to go extinct so like the endangered movements and gestures that, you know, have to do like, with like a prior. What, what would I mean, be? for example, one of them is the rotary phone. You know, I, I interviewed a gen- generation, my grandmother, and 
having a conversation with her and recording all the gestures kind of indicated these habits and these reflexes that reflect a technology and a time that, you know, my generation is not, we don't have that vocabulary in, embedded in our body in the same way that she does. So things that, you know, are starting to get weaned out, things that are um, kind of in transition, which I call the hybrid movements that have to do with movements that are reflecting both uh, an analog and a digital technology, and then yeah. movements that are very signature, what I call signature moves. So one of my favorite things to do is when I, I call them interviews, but they're really just portraits. Um, is trying to isolate what, uh, you know, what is everyone's signature move? What is the the pose or the, the reflex or the, the gesture that if you were playing um, charades with a group of people and everyone knew each other really well, if you pulled that person's name out of the hat and you did that gesture, everyone would know, oh, that's Robert or, you know, whoever. Um, yeah. And so this has become the, the fodder for most of my pieces is all these videos and this collection of these gestures um, that I will then, you know, review and pull up when I'm creating a new piece and sift through which ones might be um, conceptually aligned with whatever the research is I'm, that, I, that I'm working on at the time. And then all of a sudden I have this like vocabulary or even alphabet of material that I could start creating sentences with. Um, yeah. So that's where this piece um, for Heads Tales kind of was a departure because it was the first time I was still looking, the, the process was, was the same for me, um, but I, instead of working with dancers or movement or um, video, I decided to work with animating these lights and having that reflect this, you know, very physical movement outside the gallery. Um, and the other component of Heads Tales was I had embedded these um, headlights, you know, within the installation of the, the taillights, but the headlights were on a different program. So all of the, the taillights would illuminate and, you know, go on and off in sync with the traffic light outside the gallery. And then all of the headlights were on a different cycle that were synced with sunrise and sunset of that particular time and place in Tribeca in New York. So every day at, you know, 4.52 or whatever sunrise was during that time, um, or on that day rather, all of the headlights would go from their bright setting to their fog setting all at once, right at the moment of sun sunrise. And then they would remain in that position or at that luminosity until sunset, say that was 6.52. And then at sunset, all of them would pop into their um, bright settings again. And then the next day would be a minute forward or behind. I think it was getting later because it was in the winter time. Um, or earlier, sunsets are coming earlier. Um, and so this was something that if, you know, most of the, this moment where the, the lights, the headlights would pop on or off were not moments that people were in the gallery. Um, this is something that you could perceive from the street or if you knew it was going to happen, you can kind of plan around it. But, um, you know, at night it was extremely bright in the gallery and during the day they were on their fog setting. And it was, it was kind of an invisible layer to this piece because the head the taillights were kind of performing these different personalities and it was very easy to, you know, understand that connection to the outside world. And so for me, that in that uh, kind of uh, incorporation of the headlights and sunset was uh, almost like a beta test or a, a try, like a rehearsal for this next piece that I wanted to do because I learned how complex headlights are in general and how dynamic they are as you know, these little computers in and of themselves, especially since they're yeah. mostly LED these days. Um, and they, 
Yeah. Yeah. They, they also make me think uh, they have, all have personalities. I, I was looking at it thinking of Short Circuit and Wally and CPO. Yeah. It has this sci fi <laughs> element, but also when the lights are going on and off, there's this clicking going on, which sounds like crickets. And yeah. then doing research on you, I realized that crickets are quite, uh, was quite a big focus for you at one point. You never actually found these crickets you were looking for, but insects and insect noises yeah. are also playing in. So the, you have this kind of natural element to also the kind of, you know, mechanical technical completely that's so funny that you've connected that sound to the headlights because i i think i also um thought of that when i was uh in yeah. you know finishing the installation and listening to everything at once um or at least you know how that soundscape should feel but um that component was really exciting because i got to work with uh, one of the sound designers at bmw to um kind of go, I was really interested in, in how turn signal sounds got developed and where they came from and the history of them. And, you know, the fact that these were once analog sounds that were developed by like knocking, you know, like a TikTok sound that would be based off of hitting something against different types of wood or metal and kind of hearing this huge spectrum of um, sound samples of, you know, how, where sound turn signals came from. And for me, that's, that, sound is so inherently connected to movement and, you know, a turn of turning right, turning left, um, that I felt like incorporating that history and that research into the piece that is about the globe turning continuously and moving, you know, kind of creating this global clock where you can see the movement of the globe and the sunrise sunset. Um, it seems like a good fit. So I called my sister, who's a composer in Los Angeles, and um, I've worked with uh, on almost every one of my pieces. And we started to brainstorm, you know, the information I got from Deep BMW and the sound designer, the history of turn signals and, you know, how this developed from something that was super analog to now super digital um, and how it creates this, you know, use this atmosphere inside the car and how it's also a sound that we kind of think of as being invisible. We're not very, you know, it's something that happens in the background. We don't really pay attention to the tone and tim timbre and frequency of, you know, you know, what those rhythms are. Um, and uh, she created, and then going back to the personalities of each of these lights, after working with them for so long, I mean, each of them was like their own person, they had their own names, yeah. they were, this was this, you know, they're kind of alien, but they're also eyeball like, and they also yeah. look like it, crystals to insect me. Insect praying mantis as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. cocoons, and they all just had, yeah. you know, very strong personalities after working with them so closely um, that I wanted to design a different voice for each of them. So each of the lights, each type of light has its own um, kind of vocabulary or sound um, uh, it has their own voice so that their, uh, their bright, their, sorry, their, their lights, their light, their halos and their turn signals all have a different tone based off of that make and model. So my sister created this incredible map for each of them where it's like all of these types of lights are going to have these voices. These are going to have these voices and these are going to have these voices for, I think there were about 25 different brand, uh, makes and models. And then we set it in motion and we said, okay, this is what happens when, um, you know, when these headlights are going from sunrise or going into sunset mode, they're going to be performing these sequences where they're turning on and we're going to hear 
these tones that are associated with these different lights. Um, mm -hmm. And it created this, you know, uh, really beautiful kind of cricket-like soundscape yeah. um, that is once you in know, the background, but also kind of indicates turn and movement. Yeah. Well, you're right, because I guess back in the day, that noise when you turn left or right in your car, obviously we don't have, a, the machine isn't making that noise in the car now because it is all digital, but we, right. we're so used to that noise being the noise for indicating that we, that's been programmed into exactly. the system. I didn't really think about that. Yeah, the metronome what? has become a, exactly. a digital sound. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that works with ballet. It does. Very, very important. <laughs> yeah. What What is the rule for the headlights then? Where do you source these from? Because I know that Heads Tails, I know that Sunrise Sunset is a BMW initiative, so I guess that's all BMW cars. But how? what is the rules you've set yourself and the parameters to acquire these? Yeah, I, I really like working, you know, in the same way that I'm working with ready-made choreographies. I really like working with recycled objects or things that are going to be discarded or kind of reusing things that I find. Um, so for Sunrise Sunset, um, I was very lucky to be, you know, given access to the recycling department in Munich, um, where they have, you know, all of these uh, headlights and taillights and, you know, parts that are you know, not going to be going into cars and not going to be reused. They would be, parts of them would be recycled. Um, and so every every part of this installation except for some of the electronics and the DMX decoders and the you know speaker cable um, is 100% recycled material. Um, and all of them are also LEDs because I felt really strongly that this entire installation of 100 lights needed to be able to get connected to one outlet and not produce that much power, not draw, you know, any anything extra than what a, a small light would be doing. Um, sustainability was sustainability important. Sustainability was a huge production. design factor in this piece, yes. And um, that's also, you know, in line with, you know, what BMW is, is after and researching and was able to speak to some really wonderful engineers and people working there about their sustainability um, design and methods and um, created this piece that is entirely LED um, and draws very, very little power as a whole. It's really interesting thinking about um, BMW Openwork and like the support you've received from them in order to sort of realise this um, next step of this work that you'd already had the support of previously with Stefania Bortolami and, and Bortolami Gallery. And I just, you know, having watched interviews with you, I'm so blown away by what a great communicator you are. Mm. And also just the kind of rigorousness, oh, sorry, that's not even a word, is it? But, but the rigorous kind of um, research that you do. And as, as we've just heard, it is also deeply scientific, deeply kind of intellectual, deeply um, planned out like there's so much research going on within within all of your work but the reason it's successful to me and the reason I'm grateful to people like BMW and Bortolami Gallery for supporting you and your vision is because the actual resulting artwork has a simplicity a, a joy to it mm. um, something that looks so easy in many ways but that references a really big message which is which is togetherness for me like I, I think the thing that I really struck me about it is this concept that you were talking about mapping within the actual like you know design of the work but as an artwork itself it, it's mapping the world you know and and it's bringing together the similarities between all of us and yes we have all these different nations different countries different languages um you know across 
across the world and also different religions and different ways of seeing the world and our belief systems. But the thing that I loved about your work is that you're, you're kind of saying we all have a sunrise, we all have a sunset. You know, we all wake up with our families or on our own, but we all wake up and we, we experience the world on that kind of natural, basic kind of everyday level in a very similar way to each other. Is that something that, that is within the work for you? Yes. I mean, it's very unifying for me. And the idea of creating a global clock um, to to show that at any point in time, there is, you know, this moment of sunrise in one hemisphere and moment of sunset in another hemisphere. And in those moments, all of these rituals that we all do as humans, turning on lights, turning off lights, is happening at the same time. So it, you are seeing this kind of, I don't think bird's eye view is correct when you're talking about the globe, maybe like ISS uh, point of view, um, <laughs> where these these rituals of moving into the day or moving into the night are happening simultaneously, and it's it's this continuous looping dance that we do automatically in response to this you know this huge choreographic um, you know source, which is the sun and the rotation of the the globe itself. Um, and one of the things that I was pretty fascinated by uh, with BMW and learning more about their their lighting system, the, the, the headlight LED lighting system is that they're all adaptive. So, you know, at one point in time, we were all turning on or off the headlights, uh, you know, manually. But now most cars have this adaptive system where the second that the sensors see that the light has gone below a certain level, the headlights turn on by themselves. So at sunset, that all the headlights, you don't have to turn on your headlights, they're all popping on um, automatically. And in sunrise, they're going into their fog mode automatically. So this is something that, you know, there's cars all over the globe. Um, this is a, you know, transportation and the vehicle is something that, you know, you can find everywhere. And it is uh, a movement and a interface and a tool that we're all using. So these these cars are doing this, this you know, on and off choreography by themselves. And I kept thinking about it as like a almost like a wave that you would see in a, a stadium where you know all of a sudden one oh, right. you you see like the the wave go around wave. and around and yeah. it just keeps going forever and ever and it's something that you don't really have to think about and you don't have to be trained in and you don't have to you know know how it works or count when you need to stand up and lift your arms but it just it works and it can be it's very spectacular instinct, yeah have you got have you got the wave down in your gesture pictogram have you you managed (laughs) to get that one in there that will be the next step i have yet to get um more than one person in these in these gesture archive portraits but that would be wonderful i need to get a drone over a stadium to do that though (laughs) yeah we're talking about on and off choreography and 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 kind of technology automatically coming on at a certain point without our doing now i just want to talk about an incredible performance which uh i've read about called the new max which is uh, a combination of technology and humanity. And it's these dancers, when the room is at a certain temperature and the dancers are brought in, and when their temperature is raised to a certain point where they're dancing so much, the aircon comes on and then they can chill out and stop. And then when the temperature goes down again, they have to dance again. So it's kind of an endurance test, but also it's this kind of playing with technology, playing with this kind of setup within the gallery system. Yeah, it's it was definitely creating this playful network with the technology system and and the gallery itself and the atmosphere within the gallery. But it was also, um, you know, again looking at the globe and and the you know the fact that we're in this climate crisis and the globe is continuously heating. We're, our temperatures, our average temperatures, are rising every single year. And so that was what kind of spurred 
the idea for creating a dance that would mimic the same thing where we would all start at 65 degrees. Um, the dancers, I mean, that we would set the the thermostat for the gallery to be at 30, 65 degrees, which is the standard um, temperature that art institutions and galleries usually set their, their space in because it's the archival, it's to kind of prevent, you know, molding or bending of the of works of object-based works of art. Um, and then the choreography would start and the choreography was extremely rigorous. So we're creating these kind of vortex cycle cycles in the middle of the room that um, I could go into more detail about where the choreography came from, but it was very much designed to heat up their core temperature very fast. And then uh, because of that, heat up the air around them. And then based off of how many other humans were in the room, it would either, you know, jump five degrees very quickly, or it would take, uh, you know, an hour, half hour to do so. So they would dance until it went to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And at that point, that's five degrees higher, they, if they hit that maximum, um, the air conditioner units, the lighting would the lighting would switch off, the ACs would automatically turn on, and the dancers would rest, drink water, hang out until the temperature went back down to 66 degrees. So one degree higher than the previous um, where they started. At 66 degrees, the ACs would automatically turn off and the lights would turn back on. And that was their signal to continue exactly where they had left off in the sequence. So it was kind of this continuous, it was a perpetual freeze dance in a way. Um, it sounds and exhausting. That was, was exhausting. Yeah. How long did it, yeah. long did it last? How long did it all last? day, all day long. <laughs> the same dancers. The same dancers. Yes. <gasps> Often you we would rotate one dancer, um, but the rests were very important. And what was so fascinating is based off of you know what the temperature was outside, how many viewers were in the room. Um, sometimes they would rest for two hours because it would be so hot outside that it would take forever to come down four degrees with the ACs, and sometimes. That would happen in two seconds because people would think that the performance was done when the dancing stopped and they would all leave. And because every human emanates 100 watts just from sitting still, all of that, you know, extra heat would leave the room and, you know, the temperature would go back down to 66 and all of a sudden they're dancing again. So some days were extremely rigorous and some days were extremely relaxing. And that was really fun for the dancers as well to kind of lose an it's, entirely it's a lot sense of, of pressure. Time. It's a lot of pressure psychologically as well for the dancers. I mean, it's like such a kind of, you have to be quite resilient, don't you? And very unfocused. Um, but I guess that comes out of dance training, doesn't it? It does. So much pre precision and focus and determination and long-term commitment that that's probably all, all those skills are brought out to play in that particular work. Yeah, and once you're inside of that world and you're communicating with each other and you're becoming attuned to the temperature in the room and the lighting and you know you're in this cycle you do kind of get hypnotized and it's like you're you're completely in that you're you know one of the same with the air conditioner with the air molecules and with the lighting and um i feel like that rigor also just needs to be applied to how we're dealing with the the climate crisis where it's like you know we can't just observe this we have to be extremely act we have to be actively working to fix it and being you know very aware of what is happening at all times and the fact that if you look at the average temperatures across the globe in these different areas it's it's shifting upward you know that the 10 degree the the mins and maxes all over the globe are going up incrementally every single year which is where the the title new max came from and i called this the zip tie effect for the dancers where it's like once you start you know it's just gonna you can never go back down to the 65 degrees 
the new minimum and the new maximum are going to um, continuously get hotter and hotter and hotter. Wow. I love that. And and you still dance every day because I've read about how you've toured the world or you've been away from home for a long time dancing with Swan Lake, especially, and you had like books that you would fill in your ideas and you were conflicted and then you stopped dancing. Um, and, but you still dance every day as part of your routine. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately I haven't been able to in the way that I, I used to as a regular practice because of the pandemic and so much of, uh, that practice was about being in a, in a class with other dancers and having the live accompaniment and being able to really move across the studio. So doing that at home, you know, virtually has not been, uh, as I have not been as a regular about that, but I'm, I'm hoping to start back up once things get a bit safer and can, you know, yeah. breathe hard and sweat with people around you. Yeah. On, on a, on a practical level, like these, these works are so complex to actually install and, and even to have it in its right position, hanging on the wall. Like I was really impressed in, in freeze, just how each light was, you know, so precisely positioned to create this kind of arc of light in a way. Um, what does it feel like for you when you realize these grand ideas that you've kind of had like you know when you first did it in New York and then when this freeze one happens do you get like intense joy and relief or or, what what are all the emotions involved Um, that's a really good question because they go through it goes through different phases and one is this you know this is now a simple idea always you know inevitably turns into this project that (laughs) I get so much pushback against because of not getting access to certain you know how we program the lights or how we can get access to the computer code or the Department of Transportation, that it becomes impossible. So it feels like this epic obstacle course that you have to go through. And then once we get access, or you know, however long that takes, it could be years, it could be months, um, to actually understand what it takes to create the piece is always extremely daunting because of the amount of you know physical labor that needs to go into every single light. These lights are huge. I was also six months pregnant when I was installing this in my studio. So it was a very, you know, it was a very labor-intensive, exhausting and um, invigorating um, process. Um, and then it, it goes into this blind zone where I'm like, I don't know what this composition is going to look like because I can't know until they're up onto the, up on the wall. Um, mm. And it does feel like solving a puzzle. So there's this moment of, you know, I'm not sure what the resolution is going to be, but I know I want to answer these questions that kickstarted and catalyzed the piece in from the beginning. And throughout this process, it is like, okay, what is this puzzle? What are the puzzle pieces and how are they going to come together? Once they're together, it is this, this feeling of awe and that this thing is actually, you know, much bigger and different from my original idea. So it's a distillation of another version of what kind of got me there in the first place. And then from there, I usually realize that the piece is beginning to, to culminate when it's giving me ideas for the next piece. So I look at it again as like a type of rehearsal or this is, you know, a a project that was going to kickstart all these new questions I have that I'm going to have to dive into, um, you know, once this is up. Um, and so the second I start kind of jotting down the new questions and all these new, this new source of inspiration material that I'm getting from the process of this work, I can realize that the piece is beginning to do its job. Um, and yeah, it's this kind of nebulous zone, but it's very, um, it's very thrilling to be able to turn something like that on and have it perform and, uh, you know, and understand what that performance, you know, feels like and looks like and know that I'm not fully choreographing it. I'm letting these other 
much bigger sources, you know, like the sun, yeah. like these patterns, like turn signals, um, really the the dancers, I guess. Do you have a do you have a countdown like it's the Christmas lights going on at a department store somewhere when you when you, when you first do it and everyone's like here we go <laughs> hope fingers crossed completely yes <laughs> it usually so, takes a so hundred a hundred attempts though really like, you know, oh no oh no and then when it when Would it works it works so yeah well it's, it's when it it when it does work and I've seen it work we've both seen it work it's so impressive and a lot of people have seen it work it's it's incredibly impressive I, we, I also love this idea that that they generate new new works. So it's kind of like your practice is in itself creating an ongoing circularity kind of, you know, you know, like a produ- it's very productive, isn't it? Very much. Yeah, it's all part of the practice and it all feels like a continuous kind of study of the state of, of one either much bigger piece or a perpetual, you know, production that's just going to continue forever. But um, they they always it feels like chain link fence. It's like one is linked to the next. The next one mm. catalyzes the next. And total total artwork. <laughs> total artwork. And so much of that comes from these conversations and collaborations with the actual experts and professionals that I have to work with along the way. Because you know I have an expectation of how something works, and the second I speak to the engineer and get the history and these incredible you know stories or firsthand experiences of how they learned or how they got into the industry, all of a sudden they're opening up these other um, doors to, you know, how these other types of, you know, why it's that material is being used or, you know, how this got developed or the inventor of this piece. And those just kind of create these rabbit holes for me to dive, um, into new, new areas of research. So yeah, it's very, they're very entangled with each other and, um, there's a lot of momentum in it. Yeah. Well, um, you were talking about the pandemic earlier on, and there's another body of work I want to talk about uh, for people to know about because it, it really moved me. And you were saying how yourself, you're unable to dance because of that. But so many, I, I'm a, an actor and, and I'm a theatre kid. And for me to be, you know, denied seeing live performances, but also doing live performances and yourself as a, as a trained dancer, you, you did this incredible show um, called Review, which was 25 New York-based dancers whose shows were cancelled by the pandemic. And you brought them all to meet on stage, but they would mark through, mark as in parenthesis, through these productions, these performances, which were never realised because they were shut down. They they would like, you know, I was in a play that got shut down. We had eight previews in, you know, no, yeah. it didn't even open. So this, this concept of marking, which is a, a very dancers choreographers of dance world would understand what that is with people outside that won't understand but you can you talk a bit about this uh project because yeah. it's so moving yeah actually this piece hasn't happened yet <laughs> so this oh, is happening right. next week on the 28th oh, and 29th right. oh, for the wow. perform of the biennial um but a lot of the rehearsals and production took place in june because i needed to kick start this uh because of uh you know the, the timing of me having a little boy um and uh, so yeah, this I'm really excited about this piece and it is very moving and it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time throughout the pandemic, especially having so many friends who are, you know, their their careers are based off of this everyday practice and performance and um, that experience of, you know, performing on stage and how you grow from that as an artist. And um, the piece is exactly as you said, I'm bringing together representatives from companies from all over New York City. So from, you know, New York City Ballet to Trisha Brown, Martha Graham, Bilty Jones and um, West Side Story. West Side Story, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Fiddler on the Roof. We have, you know, representing different theaters. So there's pieces that were supposed to be at the Joyce or BAM or City Center or the Met. And 
we have the the op the uh, metropolitan opera and each of these representatives are coming in with the repertory with the pieces that they had already rehearsed for that they are preparing to do sometime during this pandemic period and you know some of them maybe there was an opening show that it was canceled or they never got to set foot on stage and the choreography is almost like harboring inside of them because they're ready to go and it it just never happened um and some have been canceled altogether and some have been indefinitely postponed so there might be another opportunity for them to do it but um this holding period has such a um intense you know as a dancer to to know that you can't perform that piece or that you don't know when you're going to is such a um a really kind of profound feeling that is so specific to this period of time and unlike anything we've had to deal with before um so i wanted to see what would happen if we bring all of these dancers together and put them on the same stage so they're kind of like in this proscenium area this piece is taking place in a uh, olympic sized swimming pool in new york outside I wanted this to be for the public so that anyone who even you know hears what's going on could come and see it. Um, and they're all performing their pieces from beginning to end um, in these different types of marking, yeah, you know, techniques. So some are marking with their hands, some are marking with the we're going through the blocking of the piece. There's kind of these different intervals of marking that um are is mostly there to um keep the dancers safe because a lot of these pieces if you put 25 <laughs> dancers together and they're going full out doing their roles in West Side Story and the Nutcracker and um you know there's going to be a lot of collisions as so is a way of really keeping the maneuvering um keeping them all on their feet rather um and uh once it's set in motion it's this piece where you're getting these little glimpses and whiffs of all these different choreographers and these uh techniques and these performances that you know were, were are almost like ghosts or like stuck in purgatory um yeah. and uh they're being they're you know being presented and kind of exhaled finally to the public exercised yes. they're being exercised yeah and um this piece is also being I'm composing it uh with a series of lights and uh, a score again from my sister Celia, where each of the dancers is going to be um, essentially all the lights turn on when they begin their piece. And as they exit, each dancer turns off their light, their, their stage light. So it begins very, very bright and chaotic. And because each of these repertory pieces, you know, whether you're doing Swan Lake or a two minute variation or a solo, a Trisha Brown solo, they all have different durations. Um, you know, it starts with 25 dancers and then it slows, slowly um, goes down to, you know, five to two, three, two, one. And so that is um, synced up with the lighting as well as the sound. Um, and we keep talking about the piece as almost like a, it's at once an homage and a requiem to all these works that, um, and these choreographers and the effort and rigor that goes into that practice and, um, you know, ends with this more cel on a more celebratory note where it's like we are finding ways to go back to the theater we are you know adapting to the situation so that we can have more live performance and really recognizing how important you know that you know live performance and audience the this you know that feeling of anticipatory Amen. you know that energy yes. you get when you are at a theater and the curtains haven't opened yet and um how much that's been missed 
Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in London recently, Russell was in a play called Constellations. And it was such a strange experience to finally be, for me, to be sat in the audience, you know, watching him on stage, but also to feel that communal joy that everyone has. Like, you know, everyone laughs, everyone cries, you know, you have, you have very emotional responses. And doing that together in a room is just, there's nothing like it, is there? It's magic. Yeah, there is nothing like it. And um, I don't think anyone was taking it for granted, but I think you know, taking it away for that period of time has really set in a new level of appreciation for that connection yeah. with the audience and that yeah. feeling and um, how important that is to culture and our society. And mm. Yeah, there's, there's, it's inspiring as well because this is what, how culture has adapted to the pandemic because this was actually preconceived before the pandemic and you were, you were saying it was like a cryptid abstracted preview so these were dances that were going to happen but because they were marking them it wasn't kind of like spoiler alert with all the dancers these the, it was like this abstract preview but then pandemic pandemic hit but you were able to kind of change it and adjust it and it's something even more powerful and potent and uh, not potent what's the word i'm looking for powerful and special now you know with this how it is conceived now yeah it that was it was pretty uncanny actually because the piece was I was looking to create the same composition but to work with dancers who all had pieces that were opening in the following fall so it was yeah. kind of giving I really wanted to recreate that feeling of you know of knowing something is about to start and that feeling when you hear the orchestra warming up and you're in the seats and the lights haven't quite yet dimmed and how to create a choreography that would capture that feeling and the tenfold because of the amount of dancers and to know that all these little movements and markings and gestures are signaling something that you're going to be able to see in full in a future date or, you know, in a few months. And so that was very exciting, but I feel like that was completely irrelevant because it wouldn't really, um, it didn't really sink in or match up with anything particular or specific happening at that time. That piece could happen every summer. Um, and I feel like my work, um, in general needs to kind of sink in for a reason and clicks when, when it works. And that's usually what catalyzes it to move forward. And so when, um, all of a sudden that piece got canceled, of course, because, um, couldn't put 25 people together and, um, you know, for many other reasons, all the other works got, all the fall pieces got canceled. Um, the kind of reversal of that work or like turning it inside out actually felt like what I had been aiming for in the beginning or from the from the get-go it seemed like it just needed to um begin the production in, in opposite order for it to yeah. align itself it's really it's, it's exciting it could, it could end up becoming like a broadway tradition if you do go back <laughs> to the original concept that you know it's like this is what's coming up for the summer it's kind of like some abstract preview yeah um, the word i was looking for was uh, poignant not potent I don't know oh, why I said that, but anyway, that's in it's the point. Potion's quite a good word anyway, Russell. Like and point. Okay. Um, can I ask you something quickly as well? So your titles, how important are they to kind of be an access point for the works? Because obviously the works have a visual um, kind of, they're quite kind of constructed, but, but, and also the ideas behind them are so complicated in many ways. But, but I, I feel like your, your titles really do um, provide a kind of open access point. Um, that's good to hear because usually I the title ends up being the working title and you know the the piece the the word that I'm using when I'm creating the score and writing my notes and um, communicating the idea to other dancers and it's really um, rare for that title to change when it comes to the final piece um, so mm. I think that I'm trying to really nail down or distill like the the basic idea of whatever the piece 
is about, um, you know, in the case of new max, that was an abbreviation for like a new maximum temperature every year. Um, and that's just the shorthand that we used to talk about it with each other. Um, and, you know, review was as simple as it could get is where we're really just looking back at this two-year period, um, which, you know, we still are in and, um, you know, not critiquing it. It's not a review in that sense. We're, we're looking at it and acknowledging it. And um, yeah, I think that the, the titles are an attempt to simplify and get the, um, the original concept across, you know, as quickly as possible. I felt like with, with Sunrise Sunset, with um it it really does make me think of um classical scores as well and kind of like the history of classical music almost in relation to nature and and how opera and all you know even dance like how how that can all be so connected i thought it was a really brilliant title actually oh thank you <laughs> so we ask every guest that comes on two very important questions um the first one is if you could do an art heist if you could steal a work of art, and it could be a performance, Ooh. it could be a Martha Graham piece from history. Uh, Martha Graham. What would it be <laughs> and why? If I could steal a piece. Not getting any trouble. And we can help you. We can make it legal. Mm. An art piece. That is a really great question. Um That's so funny. I keep on thinking about things that are not related to art. <laughs> like um, like what? Yeah, yeah like what? <laughs> okay. like, a, like, like a BMW. No, like uh, <laughs> I would love, you know, stealing the, you know, the landing on the moon or like being able to create something. And is it like an astronaut who has, gets to work in zero gravity? Like I would love to steal that opportunity to wow. go into the ISS or walk on the moon and feel what that feels like and see how that changes our you know, movement and choreography. So that's not quite, I mean, that's a performance piece on one level, the, you know, the moon landing. Um, so my brain is going to there in zero gravity, possibly because I'm just looking into that right now. But um, I love that. That is the ult ultimate ready-made. It's that the ultimate ready-made, kind of yeah. Art heist. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I want to steal uh, an astronaut's experience and turn that into a piece. Obsessed with that one. Thank you very much. <laughs> The other question we ask every guest is, what is your favorite color? Oh, um, my favorite color is green. That's so, I haven't thought about that for a while. Um, but I also have synesthesia, so I think in color. So every word and letter and sound. And, um, What's that? What is that? Um, what is that? My, all of my senses are crossed. So every sense is crossed with the color. So, um, for example, your name, Russell, is like a, a burgundy red and then ends with black and Roberts is a burgundy because also starts with R and ends with like a dark brown and black and orange. Um, my name is pink. Today is Wednesday. It's orange. So I just have these immediate associations that are really no different from any other sense. You know, they're, um, they're not extra. They're just fused together. So color plays a huge role in um, my practice and my everyday life. Um, what what day of the week is green? It, it, if Wednesday's so orange, Thursday is light green and Friday is dark green. Wow! And do you share the same colors with other people who? No, it's have completely this as well? individual. So a lot of people have synesthesia. It's something that actually a lot of people who have it don't know that they have it because it's such a you know it's so normal to them. It's their reality. It's the same thing as saying like an orange tastes like an orange. So it's very awkward to be like you know this to understand that other people don't have that sense fused with um, that perception doesn't really 
makes sense to me still. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's well, the fact that you would everyone. look at the word, the fact that you would look at the word orange, but it wouldn't be the color orange. Exactly. It's it's oh, white wow. and brown and purple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Those are both amazing answers. <laughs> the gravity thing, the whole thing. Um, one more question then. What 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 is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art? The best advice. I feel like I have um, two voices in my head uh, when I think about that. Um, And one is, they're both from dance instructors. Um, One is from Yvonne Monzi, Monzi, who's uh, my mentor, who is a Balanchine ballet dancer who kind of was, uh, who I was trained with. And for her, there was, it was, there was never enough work. So it goes back to rigor. It's like, you, you really can never do, you can do things faster and harder um, and deeper, you know, no matter how many times you've done it and you can always do it again. And it wasn't exactly a line or a piece of advice. It was just like, she was always pushing everyone to go harder and deeper um, and knowing that you can go there, um, which is kind of the exact opposite of what I got from uh, choreographer Alonzo King when I was training with him who looked at me at one point and said, stop paddling. Um, Cause he could see that the effort that I was putting in was taking away from a lot of the intuition and um, this other part that needs to be part of the work. So I feel like the combination of Yvonne saying, you know, go more rigor, you know, harder, deeper and Alonzo saying, stop paddling and see what happens is uh, something that I think about a lot. Um, so you're, you're stuck in, <laughs> A rock and a hard place. <laughs> you're in the middle of, yes. middle of this. But that creates like, more uh, movement. So that's, yeah, uh, totally. it works for me so far. Oh my God, you're amazing. One, one thing I wanted to say also before we go is that the, the gesture archive, and you were just talking about gestures on the verge of extinction. That you talked about the rotary kind of doing the phone and people put their fingers up like their thumb and their finger saying, call me. Yeah. One that I feel like has never sort of left extinction is when you ask for the check or the bill in a restaurant, we always all do this little kind of like thing with our finger, like write, like as if we're writing our name or we're asking for the checkbook or to sign it. And everybody, that's a universal thing that everybody understands. We don't do that anymore, but I feel like that's never, how is that going to, totally. that's never going to leave us, is it? No, but maybe, you know, a new, you know, because we're all paying digitally now or with our phones that there's going to be a yeah. new gesture when you kind of need that to speed up. Or, you know, I'm sure that in, you know, the check or the they're creating the signature is going to get replaced with some other gesture that has, great, you know, something to do with our phones or, you know, one day embedded in our hands ourselves so we can just wave our hand and it actually processes yeah. the payment. Yeah. But, um yeah. I guess yeah. we look at a generation that never had checkbooks. And exactly. They tell us what a I have no idea what that is. Because they're like, what is a check? Yeah. What's a checkbook? I never had to do a, a signature, you know? Exactly. But, yes, um, exactly. Yeah, signatures. Um, and do you, do, you, do, you, do you have a website that people can go to to see the archive? Um, I, I do have, it's called gesturearchive.com, but I have taken it all. I have not updated that website for oh. many, many years. So you kind of are getting a really... It, I, I essentially overflowed it with too much data. So it crashed. And then I started putting the, the videos on a hard drive, a personal hard drive that I just go through whenever I need to, you know, peruse. So you have this very, you know, cryptic, uh, clunky window into a state that it was once in, but it's, uh, it's evolved a lot since then. And it would be great to one sure, day sure. really compile all these videos together and actually organize them so someone can access them and, and understand, you know, a timeline of where these 
gestures come from and, you know, um, how I perceive them. But that's a little bit too daunting of a task given the amount of data I have if, right now that I keep on pushing that like perfect, in the future. Yeah. It feels like the perfect example of pushing and then paddling backwards. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of your website, yes. Yeah. Well, Amazing. for everyone everyone listening, we can look forward to more installations that you create, Madeline, and also your films and performances. And it's been such a privilege to speak with you for this hour because I find you so illuminating and so inspiring, just Same. the way you communicate and, and the work, you know, as well. The work is just extraordinary, and I've never really seen work like it. It's very singular and powerful and, yeah. um, you know... And so, poignant so, and potent. Layered. Yes. And potent. Yes. So um, we want to thank yeah, BMW so... and we also want to thank uh, Attila Fattori Francini, who was a curator for BMW Openworks at, uh, who works with BMW Openworks all the, all the time, I think, for BMW Yeah, Group she's done Culture. the, it's actually the fifth anniversary at the moment of BMW Openworks yeah. and, and Attila has actually worked on all five of them. Um, and this being the fifth. And also uh, BMW have been um, collaborating and supporting and celebrating um, the arts for 50 years now. Woo-hoo. It's like 50 years of cultural engagement, which is major. Yeah. And I really do applaud them for it because, to be honest, working with them over the past um, six months or so, I've, I've really got to see how much they, they do want to champion new ideas. Mm. And I think it's a really important message for other businesses, for other um, organisations, also for governments to really understand the importance of art because if we want to improve things for the environment you know for 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 social change um art often does provide numerous answers and it can provide alternatives to um you know kind of more um accepted forms of thinking in a way so this is proof of it yes thank you bmw and thank you madeline yes Uh, all images and you're on instagram yes you're on instagram Instagram. what's your instagram mc Hollander. Okay, great. And also to learn about um, this work and other exciting projects BMW have worked on, you can follow at BMW Group Culture, which is a dedicated page for all their creative, you know, including their freeze music events that I went to last week and all kinds of things. And we're at Talk Art, so you can go to at Talk Art and see images of everything we've spoken about today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stick stick around, Madeline. Thank you so much. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.